The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Building on the Immunotherapy Foundation for Head and Neck Cancer, Lessons Learned, Practical Guidance, and Next Steps in Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash JQE860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome, everybody. It's wonderful to have all of you here in the room, and and also we welcome everybody who's joined us online for this session on building on the immunotherapy foundation for head and neck cancer. And what we want to do this evening is look at the lessons learned, what are the practical guidances that come from that, and what are the next steps in care. And we want to particularly thank the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance for, for support and peer review for helping us to put this on. I want to, before I get going, talk about what a wonderful panel that we have here. Dr. Ezra Cohen, who's really been one of the foremost uh, head and neck cancer investigators for many years now, medical oncologist who's a professor at UCSD, and my colleague at Yale, Dr. Arti Bhatia, who's a rising star in developmental therapeutics in head and neck cancer. So hopefully amongst the three of us, we'll be able to give you a good flavor of where we are with immunotherapy in head and neck cancer. And let's just start with a timeline. The advent of immunotherapy for melanoma and renal cell cancer, obviously a little bit before this, but in head and neck cancer before 2016, we were really treating people with a regimen that that has a very poetic and apt name of extreme. And it was in 2016 that Pembro, and then in 2017 that nivolumab were approved, 2019 that pembrolizumab was approved in the first-line setting. We now have real-world data from a claims database looking at 2016 to 2017, and at that time, patients were receiving PD-1 inhibitor monotherapy. We want to look at how things may have changed since Pembro has moved into the first-line setting, and what's the modern role of PD-1 inhibition or PD-1 in combination with chemotherapy, and are there newer agents that we want to pay attention to? Despite progress with immunotherapy, there really are unmet needs in head and neck cancer, both for those patients with recurrent metastatic disease who are not cured by first-line immunotherapy, and then for patients with locally advanced squamous cell cancer of the head and neck, where half of patients with unresectable disease ultimately have local disease recurrence or develop metastatic disease, and where five-year overall survival rates for HPV-negative cancer have not budged very much over the years. So our goals for tonight, firstly, to improve your understanding of the evidence and guideline recommendations supporting the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors and other innovative options for the management of head and neck cancer. Secondly, to equip you with skills to develop individualized management plans that incorporate checkpoint inhibitors and other modern treatment platforms for use in different settings, and prepare you to address practical aspects of care when using immunotherapy options, particularly around patient counseling and the management of immune-related adverse events. I want to, again, thank our partners at Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. This is a patient advocacy and support organization. Their mission is to advance prevention, detection, treatment, and rehabilitation of oral and head and neck cancers through public awareness, research, advocacy, and, and survivorship. They're also, I think, notable for their support of research. And among their key programs, just want to call out 
the work that they do on awareness, partnering with medical and dental clinics to offer free screenings, educational work. They have a gas card program so that you can uh, get a limited supply of $50 gas cards to help patients with the cost of getting to the facility. They provide resources that teach patients about the importance of clinical trials and what's involved in participating in a trial. There's peer-to-peer mentorship and an online support community. So the wonderful work that they do, and and we're uh, honored to partner with them. So let me kick this off now with consideration of the foundational evidence for standard of care immunotherapy and its development, as well as looking a little bit at the role of biomarkers in in our thinking. So I'll start by saying that I think immunotherapy is now a core part of practice guidelines for recurrent metastatic squamous cell head and neck cancer, and this comes from the NCCN guidelines, where the two preferred first-line regimens are pembrolizumab with platinum 5-FU or pembrolizumab monotherapy for patients that express PD-L1 in, in the tumor or associated immune cells. And for patients who are not exposed to pembrolizumab or pembrolizumab chemotherapy in first line, the subsequent line therapy preferred regimen is either nivolumab or pembrolizumab. Other recommended regimens for first and subsequent line therapy, and you might think of some of these particularly for patients who are not PDL1 expressing cetuximab in chemotherapy, cisplatin cetuximab, cisplatin 5-FU, cisplatin or carboplatin with docetaxel and cetuximab, and then a number of single agents that most of us are saving for subsequent lines of therapy. So I think the first thing to do is to consider why people thought that immune checkpoint inhibitors might be active in head and neck cancer. And I guess one simple answer is they're they're active in a lot of places, so why not try? But there are features of head and neck cancer that are particularly predictive of benefit from immunotherapy. One is an elevated tumor mutational burden, and, and we'll look at some of the data about that. Another is that it was known that head and neck cancers express ligands, which trigger the immune checkpoint receptors, so both PDL1 and PDL2 are expressed in head and neck cancer. If you look at head and neck cancers under the microscope, some of them have tumor infiltrating lymphocytes, tertiary lymphoid structures, and then maybe also some suppressive elements in the tumor microenvironment, such as M2 polarized macrophages and myelo-derived suppressor cells. And I think one question that maybe we didn't pay enough attention to early on, but that both preclinical data and I think increasingly clinical data have been, have, have been raising this question is whether or not the fact that our definitive management in head and neck cancer almost always involves ablation of the tumor tra- draining lymph nodes, has that blunted immune response in head and neck cancer? And is, is that a barrier either to cure with those therapies or to the use of immunotherapy? So let's just start by considering tumor mutational burden. There is obviously a DNA damage signature that comes from tobacco and alcohol exposure, common risk factors in our patients. It's also the case that the clustered hypermutation that results from the gene editing proteins APABEC has been described both in HPV negative and in HPV positive cancers, and in HPV positive cancers felt to drive the majority of that mutational burden. One of the interesting things about the um, APABEC mutations is that they're very hydrophobic. They're believed to be more neoantigenic than than some of the other non-synonymous mutations that we see. So if you see here, looking at non-synonymous mutations across individual head and neck cancers, although they're more common in the HPV-negative cancers, they are also seen in some HPV-positive cancers. 
and this excess of mutations creates areas within the genome that might be transcribed as, as tumor antigens or neoantigens. And we have data from the EAGLE trial, which was a comparison of the pdl one inhibitor Dervalimab or uh, that with a CTLA-4 inhibitor. Either of those arms compared to conventional standard of care chemotherapy for uh, platinum-experienced patients. And in that trial, although Dervalimab and Dervatremi were not superior to chemotherapy in the overall population, if you looked at the patients with the higher tumor mutation burden, immunotherapy was superior to chemotherapy, uh, both for progression-free survival and overall survival. And then it's now been demonstrated that regional lymph nodes harbor T-cells required for immune checkpoint inhibitor response. Actually, work from Dr. Cohen's institution has demonstrated that if you ablate the tumor-draining lymph nodes in, in mice, they are less likely to respond to murine immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so I think beginnings of a challenge to our paradigm of um, immediately ablating the, the lymph nodes in all of our patients. Not that we have any data to do different practice yet, but as we think about trial designs. Just to recap the early immunotherapy experience in head and neck cancer, Keynote 012 was a phase 1b trial that demonstrated high response rates for pembrolizumab and led to the initial approval of pembrolizumab in head and neck cancer. The first two randomized trials were the Checkmate 141 and the Keynote 040. So the Checkmate 141 looked at nivolumab compared to investigator's choice of standard of care therapy. And then the Keynote 040, reported by Dr. Cohen, looked at uh, pembrolizumab in the same setting. And in each of these cases, it it was clear that immunotherapy was superior to single agent, either cetuximab or chemotherapy. And so with uh, robust data from two different PD-1 inhibitors, it then made sense to try to move these drugs into the first-line setting in recurrent metastatic disease. And the challenge here was that we were seeing responses of 16, 17 for HPV-positive disease, maybe 20% for immune checkpoint inhibitors. And the standard of care therapy, as much as we hated it, the extreme regimen had a response rate of about 35%. So how were we going to balance the risk that uh, there'd be patients with early progression against the possibility of durable impact on overall survival? And so this led to a very complicated trial design, and I'm just going to talk you through this. There were two experimental arms. One was pembrolizumab alone, and the other was pembrolizumab with chemotherapy. And each of those was compared independently to the control arm of the extreme regimen. There was not sufficient power. The study was not large enough to compare those two arms together. And then the analysis of the study for the pembrolizumab alone arm went in the following way. First, we're going to check if it's better than chemotherapy in the patients who have a lot of PDL1. And then if that's true, then we'll look at the overall group of patients who have some PDL1 expression. And only if that's superior will we then look to see if pembrolizumab is superior to the extreme regimen for all comers. Um, And so you can see that this was sort of a conservative design, preparing for the possibility that pembrolizumab might only be effective where PD-L1 was positive, but giving you less information as you got to the the patients with less PD-L1 expression, although we've gone back to address that, and I'll show you that. So if we start for uh, pembrolizumab treatment, 
up against the extreme regimen in patients who had CPS1 or higher, so tumor and immune cells expressing pdl one divided by the tum- number of tumor cells in the field multiplied by 100. And so you can see here that the median survival went from 10.4 to 12.3 months, hazard ratio 0.74. This was statistically significant. And if you look at long-term survival, there is a benefit that continues out to five years with uh, about a 10% improvement in overall survival. And if you then look at the combination of pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy up against the extreme regimen, again, in the CPS1 population, again, you can see that it's uh, superior to the extreme regimen. And here, the five-year survival is a little bit higher at 18.2%. If you look at the group that we defined as having the highest pdl one expression, the CPS20 population, here for pembrolizumab alone, uh, compared to the extreme regimen, OS went from 10.8 to 14.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0. 6-1. And here you saw five-year survival going from 7.4 to 19.9 months. And for pembrolizumab plus chemo, very similar median survival, 14.7 months. However, if you start to look at the patients on the tail of the curve, maybe a suggestion that at four and five years, there are a few more patients who benefited in, in this group. So we then went back to look at the patients because the, the way that analysis had been, we always went to a larger group. So we didn't have um, detailed information about the CPS less than 1 or the 1 to 19. So we went back and, and did that. And at the top, you see the pembrolizumab alone versus the extreme regimen. And at the bottom, you see pembro chemo. And um, as you can see, for the CPS less than 1, pembrolizumab alone appeared to underperform the extreme regimen. Um, there's no statistics testing on this. It's a pretty small number of patients, but you can see consistently the Pembro arm running below the extreme regimen. For pembrolizumab up against the the, uh, cetuximab chemotherapy regimen in the 1 to 19 population, here you had pretty similar median overall survivals and a little bit of a benefit in the area under the curve for um, pembrolizumab. In this group of patients, there is a little bit better power. There were about the same number of patients in this group as in the CPS20 group. And then if you look at pembrolizumab chemotherapy, here you see a suggestion of a benefit in the 1 to 19 group and quite comparable in pdl one less than 1 group. I just want to call out one subset in the forest plots. Um, if you look at the patients who are P16 positive and treated here with pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy, This group for pembrolizumab monotherapy, pembrolizumab performed about the same as the extreme regimen, but here pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy in the P16 positive cohort, a hazard ratio of 0.39 for the CPS20 and 0.55 for the CPS1. So some suggestion that the fact that chemo is so active in HPV positive cancers works well together with immunotherapy. In terms of a response, the response rate here was quite comparable to what we had seen in early studies, uh, 16.9% compared with 36% for the extreme regimen for pembromono and pembro plus chemo, uh, 37%, quite similar to the extreme regimen. If you look at duration of response, it's quite long for pembrolizumab alone in the small percentage of patients who are having a response to pembro. So in the 51 patients who responded to pembromono, that was a duration of response of 22. Six months up against 4.5 months for the extreme regimen. If you look at Pembro chemo, this is obviously with a much higher response rate, a different group of patients. And for that 102 patients, the duration of response is 6.7 months. 
up against 4.3 months. So there's been another very intriguing first-line study looking at nivolumab PD-1 inhibitor and combined here with ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor. And this obviously is a regimen that's been quite successful in melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer. And compared here in a one-to-one randomization to the extreme regimen of cetuximab platinating agent in 5-FU. And the primary endpoint of the study was overall survival in all randomized patients, as well as overall survival in those patients with CPS 20 or higher. And unfortunately, in this study, we did not see an improvement in overall survival, although the data were were intriguing in the CPS 20 population. So if you look at the all randomized patients, you can see the similarity of of the curves there for overall survival. And as has been seen with pembrolizumab and indeed with immunotherapy alone in in other cancers as well, there's an initial inferiority to the progression-free survival and then the curves uh, for PFS cross. But so no suggestion in the overall population of a benefit for nivolumab plus ipilimumab. So then looking at the CPS20 population, which is where you would expect immunotherapy to be most potent, you do see here an improvement in um, median overall survival from 14 and a half to 17 and a half months. But given the size of that cohort and the multiple analyses conducted in the study, that p-value of 0.04 was not actually statistically significant. Looking at the P16 subgroup here, so remember I said that with Pembro, it did look like that was a group of patients who benefited from the addition of chemo. So the question was, would they benefit from the addition of the CTLA-4 antagonist? And here, actually, although it looks as if nivolumab plus ipilimumab is, is faintly favored over the extreme regimen for P16 negative, it's actually somewhat unfavorable for the P16 positive patients. So one of the limitations of that study, I think, is that we're looking at this combination of nivolumab plus ipilimumab with no nivolumab monotherapy arm. And, you know, all of our experience from the platinum-experienced population led us to believe that pembrolizumab and nivolumab were very similar drugs. So how was it that pembrolizumab was superior to chemotherapy and cetuximab and nivolumab ipilimumab wasn't? And I think one of the questions was, was ipilimumab actually helpful? Helpful in this trial or not, and it's difficult to tease that out when there's no nivolumab monotherapy arm. But there was a parallel study, a randomized phase two called Checkmate 714, which looked at the comparison of nivolumab to Nevo plus IPI, either in platinum refractory disease or in patients who had not yet had platinum for their recurrent metastatic disease. And if you look at the results first in the platinum refractory, you're looking at a response rate for ipinevo of about 13% compared to 18% for nevo with complete responses of 38 and 2.4%. So perhaps that seems somewhat similar. And you're looking in the platinum-eligible patients at response rates of uh, 20 for nevo ipi and 29% for for nivolumab monotherapy. Also no advantage in OS, although that wasn't the primary endpoint. So I think we're left without a clear indication that ipilimumab is going to be helpful in recurrent metastatic disease. I think some of the data that you'll hear about later, maybe in the neoadjuvant setting, that might be a, a different story. 
And then the Kestrel study looked at Durvalumab. This is a PDL1 immune checkpoint inhibitor here with or without the CTLA4 drug tremolumumab. And here, again, no advantage for the immunotherapy. And I think as you go through the evening, maybe you'll again get the flavor that the PDL1 inhibitors are not quite as active in head and neck cancer as the PD1 inhibitors. Well, you know, I've given some hints that there's some patients who might benefit from getting chemotherapy together with the pembrolizumab. And at the same time, I've been reflecting how much everybody hates platinum 5-FU infusion. So one of the questions that people have been interested in is, are there alternate chemo backbones? And this is from a phase four study, the Keynote B10, which was presented last year at ESMO, um, demonstrating that the combination of pembrolizumab with carboplatin and paclitaxel has a response rate of 43% with a 4.9% complete response rate. And as you can see there, uh, duration of response of about 5.5 months. The study is not yet mature in terms of overall survival, but I think gives some hint that there may be alternate strategies for combining immunotherapy with pembrolizumab. And I wanted to draw everybody's attention to abstract 6003 that's going to be in the oral session at this ASCO from Jerome Lafayette, looking at, they're referred to as a frail immune population, patients who are either over age 70 or have renal dysfunction, uh, looking at Durvalumab with weekly paclitaxel and carboplatin. I'd also like to just take a step back and say these regimens are well-tolerated. Pembrolizumab plus chemotherapy had the same rate of toxicity and high-grade toxicity as the extreme regimen. Pembrolizumab, it was about half. But there are unique toxicities that come with the use of immune checkpoint inhibitors. So the immune response can be directed not only against the tumor, but also against normal organs. Pneumonitis and and diarrhea and rash are probably the most common things that we see. So it's important to be aware that there are uh, consensus guidelines for the management of immune-related adverse events from ASCO, from NCCN, from the Society for the Immunotherapy of Cancer, and from ESMO, and the citations are down below. Basically, for grade one toxicity, you can continue the immunotherapy or consider only a temporary delay and manage the the symptoms reactively. For grade two toxicity, withhold immunotherapy. If symptoms don't resolve within about a week, think about beginning corticosteroids with prednisone 0.5 to a milligram per kilogram per day or the equivalent. And quite important, if you start steroids and the patient is improving, to taper the steroids off relatively slowly, so at least over a month. And if symptoms recur as you taper, to go back up and and taper even more slowly. But these are patients who you can redose once toxicity resolves to grade one or better. And for grade three, four toxicity, discontinuing immunotherapy, multidisciplinary evaluation. For grade four, always hospitalization, often for grade three. And here you're looking at high-dose corticosteroids, prednisone one to two milligrams per kilogram per day or the equivalent, and tapering the high-dose corticosteroids over a month or longer until the toxicity resolves. So with that, I'd like to go into our first case forum on integrating upfront immunotherapy. And this is a lightly disguised patient of my own. We'll call him Mr. A. He's 72 years old. He loves to play golf. 
and he has a history of a floor of mouth cancer that was treated actually before I moved to Yale with resection and radiation in 2012. His course was uh, complicated by radiation fibrosis in the neck, but other than that, he did quite well until September of 2016 when he developed a T3N1 supraglottic larynx cancer. He went to total laryngectomy because this was within his radiation field. His margins were negative. There was no evidence of extranodal extension. And at that point, we observed him. About a year and a a month or so later, he developed a paratracheal mass, biopsied this, and found that it was squamous cell carcinoma. And at that time, he was a platinum-naive patient, and we gave him standard-of-care therapy with cetuximab and chemotherapy. However, he really didn't want to wear the pump because he was worried about getting out on the golf course and all the other things that he does. So we gave him carboplatin, paclitaxel, and cetuximab. And he had a major partial response to that. He was then taken back to the operating room for resection of the residual mass. The margins were negative, and we observed him. He recurred again, however, and at that time we began him on pembrolizumab monotherapy. He had a complete response to that and finished that in February of 2021. Last December, he came in and he had a little bit of irritation at the stoma. There was just a small lesion there. We didn't actually expect it was going to be cancer, but we got a PET scan and he had a 3.5 centimeter area of FDG avidity that had recurred in the same area as his prior surgeries and his prior recurrence and his prior complete response to pembrolizumab. So the surgeon and I were getting all busy trying to get him back to the OR as quickly as we could to get this all biopsied so that we could convince ourselves that we knew what was going on. And And he said that he did not think he needed to go back to the OR, that the pembrolizumab had worked great last time, and why couldn't I just put him back on that? So that wouldn't actually have been our highest level recommendation, but we could sort of see the where he was coming from. <laughs> um, and so we started him back on pembrolizumab, and he uh, has just had his first restaging PET scan and has had very nice partial response, at least at this point. So our plan is, if it keeps working this well, to finish out another two years. So I think as we reconsider uh, his case, and maybe I'll turn to my colleagues here, The first question would ask, and I'll tell you that his CPS was uh, 70. So the first question I would ask is, is there a CPS threshold above which you would never use chemotherapy? I would say no, because there are some patients, irrespective of their PD-L1 CPS, who, in my opinion, a response would be highly favored. And I would still treat them with chemotherapy and pembrolizumab. Now, I I might drop the chemotherapy after a couple of cycles, but I know that the addition of chemotherapy is going to increase the objective response rate. And in such a patient, that's an important goal. So uh, in those patients where a response is highly desired, to me, it almost doesn't matter what the PDL one status is because my, one of my primary goals is get the tumor under control. I agree with that. So um, the PDL one is one component of um, deciding whether or not to use immunotherapy. The other component is the clinical picture. And you know, uh, depending on the turnaround time for the PDL one CPS score, like if someone is really symptomatic, we may not even wait for it. Like you may just start with the chemotherapy with or without immunotherapy to at least start the response uh, going. And then if they turn out high and have a nice response to chemo, you know, like you said, drop the chemo quickly and just continue the immunotherapy. 
very much my own practice as well. I, I guess I'll I'll add to that. We don't see a lot of pseudo progression in head and neck mm-hmm. cancer, but if you have someone whose airway is under threat, the last thing that you want is to have that get worse for a couple of weeks before it gets better. Yeah, but we do see progression, right? <laughs> right. So yes, uh, although. In the, those people with CPS 70, 80, I, th- I think their response rate tends to be quite high. But I think the obligation to deal with the bleeding risk, the, the pain, the airway issues, the swallowing issues, the aspiration that our patients face. So the next question is, in patients who are in the 1 to 19 zone, do you always use chemotherapy? RT. So again, it depends on the the site of tumor. Is it local regionally recurrent? How symptomatic they are? Do they have tiny lung nodules? So in someone who has an airway at risk, you know, I would probably add the chemo. For someone who has tiny lung nodules, asymptomatic metastatic disease, where we have time and space for progression, so if they progress, they wouldn't necessarily have symptoms. Those are patients I feel more comfortable using single-agent immunotherapy for. Yeah, Barbara, we may disagree on on this one. I think we we probably do. So for the 1 to 19, all things being equal, I would use pembrolizumab monotherapy, unless, of course, again, as we discussed, our response was highly desired. My interpretation of the data are that the, in the 1 to 19 group, pembrolizumab fared as well with respect to overall survival as the extreme regimen, but had a much longer duration of response and was obviously going to be better tolerated. And so I would, I would like to give patients that opportunity to have a less toxic regimen and hopefully, if they respond, have that long duration of response. And then I could always go back to chemotherapy if, uh, if it wasn't working. I struggle with your interpretation of the duration of response data because I think you look at the OS curve, those same patients who were doing really well did really well with Pembro chemo, but you have another 50 patients in there who were responding more to the chemo or who required chemo plus Pembro like the HPV positive. So, you know, I think as we learn a little bit more about what's the minimum amount of chemo that we can use together with Pembro, what about single-agent chemo with Pembro? What about two cycles? And then I guess the other question is, are your payers allowing you to keep the Pembro going when you add the chemo back in? Because I think that's the other thing that I worry yeah. about. Do you, if you have an early progression, do you rob the patient of the ability to stay on Pembro? So I tend not to do that. Uh, that is to say that if they're progressing on Pembrolizumab, I stop the Pembrolizumab and, and go to usually a cytotoxic chemotherapy regimen. And of course, we're talking about patients outside of a clinical trial, mm-hmm. and clinical trials should, you know, should always be first in mind. I know that practice is done. I've, I've certainly seen it done. We've had patients referred uh, to us that, that have had that treatment, but, but there are no data to support that. So, so I haven't tested the waters for mm-hmm. you know, what, how payers would respond to that. Yep. Okay. And then the last and probably the most controversial question I'm going to raise is what do you make of all the data? And maybe you'll talk about the Javelin data a little bit later as well. But what is your interpretation of how these agents are faring in the HPV positive patients as monotherapy? Do you want me to go first? Sure. Yeah, so, um, so, I, so I, as I look at the data, I think it's controversial. I think there are data sets, or I see that there are data sets that demonstrate that HPV-positive patients do better and then HPV-positive patients do worse with, with anti-PD-1. Now, um, you made the, the statement that in that specific arm of chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, 
there seemed to be a difference favoring the HPV-positive patients. And maybe there is some favorable interaction knowing that these patients do, do well with chemotherapy. But it's one data set, you know, we, I think we, we still need to see. But HPV by itself doesn't factor into my treatment decision. Having said that, we do know that HPV patients, uh, positive patients tend to, uh, if they do have disease recurrence, it tends to be metastatic, not local regional tends to be. We certainly see you know, a fair number of HPV-positive local regional failure, unfortunately, but tends to be metastatic, tends to be lower disease burden, and, and, and so they do have a different disease than the HPV negatives. So I hear you. I hear that HPV <laughs> tends not to respond as well to immunotherapy. It is a small data set. They tend to be exquisitely sensitive to chemo. But again, I do factor in the burden of disease and the PDL1 status. And you know, anecdotally, we've all had these HPV positive patients who have a high PDL1 score and do well with immunotherapy. So again, in my mind, if I have that space to allow some progression and they're if they have a decent PDL1 score, you know, again, I don't factor that into it as much while choosing immunotherapy as first line. Yep. No, I, I agree. It's, it's difficult to understand. They actually have a higher response rate, either Pembro or Nevo, mm-hmm. as monotherapy than the HPV negative, but they get so much out of platinum, yep. I, I think, is the, is the complicating thing there. So I think with this, I'll turn it over to Dr. Cohen to talk Great. about emerging PD-1 inhibitors and combinations. Great. Thanks, uh, thanks, Barbara. And thanks to everybody for uh, attending tonight. It's really a pleasure to be presenting the next part of this symposium. And uh, I'll start with focusing on nasopharynx cancer. So a little bit different than what you've heard about uh, so far, that is more traditional squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck that we see a lot more of in this country. But uh, as we well know, nasopharynx cancer is an important disease in certain parts of the world and endemic in parts of Southeast Asia and the Mediterranean region. And there are very good data to support the use of anti-PD-1 antibodies in nasopharynx cancer first line in combination with chemotherapy. This was first set by the so-called JUPITER-2 trial. This was a phase three study adding toripalumab to the approved chemotherapy doublet in first line recurrent metastatic nasopharynx cancer. That doublet is gemcitabine and cisplatin. And you can see the study design was a one-to-one randomization with the addition of the anti-PD-1 antibody versus a placebo, the primary endpoint, progression-free survival. And what you see here is a, I would say, marked difference in favor of the addition of toripalumab to chemotherapy. Again, this was the primary endpoint, progression-free survival. You can see that the hazard ratio was 0.52. The median was 8 in the control arm versus almost 12 in the experimental arm. What's more is when one looks at the subgroup analysis, this was true almost irrespective of PDL1 expression. In fact, even low expressors of PDL1 in the tumor seem to benefit from the addition of toripalumab. And, and we know, of course, nasopharynx cancer is a different disease. It has a different tumor microenvironment. And clearly, PDL1 is not the whole story when it comes to using these agents. It's worthwhile looking at the overall survival in this study as well for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're interested in 
patients being alive longer. And you can see here that there is an emerging difference in overall survival between the two arms. In fact, the updated data, we see a hazard ratio of 0.6 and a p-value of 0.046. If you round that up, it's 0.05. But it does look like there's a real difference here. What's more is that nasopharynx cancer is a disease where patients do survive a fairly long time. And you can see that the 12-month survival in both these arms is, is very good, above 80%. But of course, it does drop. These patients do have metastatic disease. And you can see that around eight months, nine months, the curves begin to separate and they separate for good. So in terms of adverse events, really no surprises here. The typical toxicity of gemcitabine and cisplatin, no exacerbation of those toxicities with the anti-PD-1 antibody. But of course, we do see the immune-related adverse events as expected in the toripalumab arm. Interestingly enough, about 20% of patients on the placebo arm had immune-related adverse events. But of course, this was a blinded study. So there, there may have been some interpretation there. This is the updated data, but here are the summary from the abstract text itself. Now a median follow-up of 30 months, and I'll draw your attention to the median overall survival, still not reached in the toripalumab arm, but 33 months in the placebo arm. So again, that sense of if you follow these patients long enough, those curves continue to separate, and I think that's probably what we'll see with the Kaplan-Meier curves. There is another agent that's been looked at, another anti-PD-1 antibody, and that's tislelizumab. Again, very similar design added to gemcitabine and cisplatin. Once again, progression-free survival was the primary endpoint. And what you can see is that, in fact, again, the addition of the anti-PD-1 antibody improved PFS. And in fact, again, the hazard ratio almost identical at 0.5, 0.52. And so there appears to be a benefit across the board with adding an anti-PD-1 antibody. Interestingly enough, even the overall survival curves look very similar. They begin to separate around nine months, and that separation gets wider as the data mature. Of course, the final OS data are still immature, and we're waiting to see that. I'm I'm sure we'll eventually see the mature data there. Okay, great. And then in terms of safety profile, again, nothing surprising here. The adverse events that we'd expect from that doublet chemotherapy regimen and the immune-related adverse events that we'd expect with an anti-PD-1 antibody. Well, what about combining PD-1 inhibitors with targeted agents in squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck? And there's a couple of examples of this. In fact, the first reported was based on the mechanism of action of some of these multi-kinase inhibitors, specifically targeting tyrosine kinases like MET, where we know that that is an important marker in head and neck cancer, especially HPV negative, and perhaps even more importantly, VEGF, because we know that VEGF suppresses anti-cancer immunity at multiple points, including its effects, potential effects on Tregs and potential effects on T cell trafficking, as well as on antigen presenting cells. 
So that formed the rationale for combining such a multi-kinase inhibitor. In this case, it was lenvatinib that inhibits VEGF receptors, FGF receptors, as well as others, in combination with pembrolizumab in a phase 1b2 study. And what you see here is an objective response rate of 40%. Interestingly enough, at first assessment, no patients had had progressive disease as defined by RESIST. And you also see an interesting progression and free survival with a median of 8.2 months. And this, of course, led to a phase three study, the so-called LEAP-10 trial that now randomizes patients that you see that at the bottom of the table in the first line to pembrolizumab monotherapy as the control and lenvatinib pembrolizumab as the experimental arm, of course, in patients whose tumors express pdl one as Barbara eloquently rationalized in her talk. There is a companion trial in second line called LEAP-9. This study is also randomized, employs lenvatinib pembrolizumab as the experimental arm and standard of care single agent chemotherapy as the control arm. Both these trials have completed accrual. Actually, I don't believe LEAP-9 has, but LEAP-10 has completed accrual, and our hope is that we'll see data in the near term. There's another example of a multi-kinase inhibitor in combination with anti-PD-1, and that is cabozantinib. Some similarities certainly overlap between the two mechanisms of action between lenvatinib and cabozantinib. You see VEGF receptor inhibition. You see other molecules similar between the two, but, but distinct differences as well, such as axle, such as MET, and possibly some different immune effects. And, and now we have phase two data that combine these two agents, pembrolizumab and cetuximab. And what you see here is a 54% objective response rate. And, and I'm not meaning to compare the, between the two studies because, of course, you know, that would be completely unfair scientifically. But clearly, this combination of a multi-kinase inhibitor such as lenvatinib and cabozantinib with anti-PD-1 is highly active in squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. And we do know that these combinations have been approved in other diseases and hopefully will soon be approved in squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. So let's move to a case now, preparing for the emerging immunotherapy option. And here's a case, a patient of mine, a young woman, 33-year-old of Asian descent. She immigrated to the United States as a teenager, no past medical history really, never smoker. And she presented with epistaxis, bilateral uh, lymphadenopathy, and eventually diagnosed with an EBV-positive nasopharynx cancer staged as T2 N2M0. She was treated with standard therapy, cisplatin radiation, and we can certainly talk about that if there's questions in terms of how to appropriately manage a patient with locally advanced nasopharynx cancer, but she received concomitant chemotherapy radiation. Unfortunately, 12 weeks after completing chemotherapy radiation, she had a scan, and that scan demonstrated a solitary 1.3 centimeter nodule in the liver. And so I'll turn to my colleagues and ask how they would approach a patient like this. Archie, how would you, so nasopharynx cancer, free of local regional recurrence, but an apparent hepatic metastasis. 
So, you know, we know that these viral mediated cancers tend to have a very systemic disease. You know, once you have a metastasis, there's likely going to be more down the road, and eventually they are going to need some sort of systemic treatment, but they can also have a slower indolent process. So it wouldn't be unreasonable to consider like a local ablation of the lesion, um, local radiation. You know, she's young just to kind of buy time and, you know, kick the bucket down the road in terms of starting systemic treatment. Yeah. Barbara? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I I guess I'll say that I am still a believer that if you didn't give induction, patients should get the out back. So Mm -hmm. I would have been planning to give her platinum 5-FU had you not found a liver lesion. And so although I completely agree with ablating the lesion, I guess I would still be asking myself, like if she hadn't had this, I'd be giving her chemo, and now she has this, do I want to give her less? So I I might think about giving additional chemo, and we'll be seeing some data about gemcitabine in the adjuvant setting uh, in the oral session on Monday. And, you know, the the HN001 trial that NRG is running at the moment looks at what happens to the EBV DNA with therapy. So the way that study works, if you've cleared your EBV DNA, you get randomized to chemo or observation. But if you haven't, they do actually have an arm where they're looking at incorporating gemcitabine. And Mm -hmm. so the question of whether you... I I agree with surgery or radioablation or SBRT, but I'd be curious about, you know, what are my chemo options for this patient as well? Yeah. Yeah, and and so well, so all, all of those things. Uh, that was exactly the discussion that that we had at at our tumor board, and and we just did decide to go with SBRT, favoring the data that has shown that in patients with oligometastatic disease, uh, SBRT actually does improve survival. And follow-up scans have shown a dramatic reduction, as you might guess, in her hepatic disease. And, and we'll see what happens to her. So, so right now, no, no other lesions have cropped up. And, and hopefully that, that'll be uh, for a long time. I think we've talked about that, that phase three evidence supports the use of anti-PD-1 antibodies such as uh, toripalumab and tizlilizumab, and that the NCCN does recommend an available PD-1 therapy can be combined with gemcitabine and cisplatin based on extrapolation. Of course, uh, the, the two, those two agents are not approved yet in the U.S., but that should be forthcoming. Okay. So now we'll hear about Beyond Standard Immunotherapy, New Directions and Mechanisms of Action from Dr. Bhatia. So good evening, everyone, and thank you for having me here tonight. I will be reviewing clinical trials, recent trials that have exploited the EGFR axis and trying to overcome resistance to cetuximab in head and neck cancers. So cetuximab is an, a monoclonal antibody directed against EGFR. It's the only targeted therapy to date that's approved in head neck cancers. And this approval was based on improved local regional control, improved overall survival when combined with radiation in patients with locally advanced disease. And in the metastatic recurrent setting, combined with chemotherapy, it improved progression-free and overall survival. Its clinical utility is fairly limited, though, because of resistance to treatment. So ligand binding of EGFR leads to dimerization with other members of the HER family, so HER2 and HER3 primarily, also with other receptor tyrosine kinases such as CMET and VEGF. 
And this leads to downstream cascading of um, oncogenic pathways, including MAP kinase, PA3 kinase, the RAS-RAF, JAK-STAT. And resistance to treatment is really, you know, can happen because of one of several mechanisms. So there can be overexpression of EGFR or its ligands, which we know occurs in head and neck cancers. There can be nuclear translocation of EGFR, uh, where it leads to phosphorylation of PCNA and tumor cell proliferation. There can be increased dimerization with other members of the HER family and crosstalk with other receptor tyrosine kinases, such as CMET or VEGF, like we talked about. So CMET is a receptor tyrosine kinase that's primarily ligand-bound by the hepatocyte growth factor. And once it binds, it leads to phosphorylation, downstream recruitment of adapter molecules such as GRB2 and GAB1. And these ultimately lead to recruitment of more oncogenic proteins such as SHP2, RAS-RAF, the PA3 kinase, ultimately leading to tumor cell progression, invasion, and metastases. And multiple strategies and recent clinical trials have focused on trying to inhibit this pathway. The the most successful one of recently was an anti-HGF monoclonal antibody called fliclituzumab, which we will talk about in a little bit. Other strategies have utilized monoclonal antibodies against CMAT and also small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitors of CMAT, some of which are in development. So this was a recently published uh, phase two trial in patients with recurrent and metastatic head and neck cancer that are pan-refractory. So to cetuximab, platinum-resistant, anti-PD-1 exposed, 60 patients were enrolled in this study and randomized to either ficlituzumab monotherapy every two weeks or in combination with cetuximab. And this was a a multi-center study. The primary endpoint was median progression-free survival. The response assessments were stratified by HPV status and a post-talk analysis. So the monotherapy arm, the ficlituzumab monotherapy arm, was closed early because it met the pre-specified futility analysis criteria um, because of you know low PFS, low response rates. There was just one responder, I think, among a handful of patients. But the combination cohort showed a progression-free survival of about 3.7 months. The overall survival was seven to eight months. And you know on the post-talk analysis, there was stratification by HPV status. And and you can see in the, in the last curve that those curves uh, definitely separate. So all of the responses were seen in the HPV negative cohort. That cohort reported an objective response rate of 38%, which included two complete and four partial responses. The HPV positive cohort had really no responses. And the median PFS was obviously longer for the HPV negative cohort. Most common toxicities on the combination arm were acneform rash, which is a class effect we see with EGFR inhibitors. It's a well-established side effect. Hypoalbuminemia, edema. There were infections that were more commonly seen on the combination arm. Again, something you know that could be attributed to cetuximab treatment. And pneumonitis, which is a known class toxicity for HGFC met inhibitors, were seen in three patients on this trial. Based on the encouraging results that were seen in the HPV negative cohort, a phase three trial is expected with this combination. This is another ongoing study which we are currently enrolling patients to at Yale. It's a single institution IIT combining cetuximab and afatinib in a planned 50-patient cohort of patients with recurrent metastatic disease that are platinum-resistant and have seen immunotherapy as well. Our hypothesis for this study was that targeting multiple members of the HER family would help overcome some of the resistance mechanisms that we talked about previously. 
So in this study design, cetuximab is dosed at standard doses, either weekly or biweekly, and afatinib is dosed at 30 milligrams daily continuously. Biopsies are mandatory at baseline and then where feasible, obtained on treatment and again at disease progression. And the primary endpoint for our trial is um, objective response rates. 46 of um, a planned 50-patient cohort have already been enrolled, and at interim analysis that was done after the first 25 patients were enrolled, we saw an objective response rate of 29%. I think there was one complete response and all partial responses otherwise. This has not been teased out by HPV status, although we do think we're seeing more responses in the HPV-negative cohort as expected. And correlatives are planned around protein expression of the oncogenic proteins in the EGFR signaling axis and seeing how this correlates with response eventually. Pitocemtimab is a bispecific antibody that targets EGFR and LGR5 on cancer stem cells. So in preclinical models, uh, binding of pitocemtimab led to EGFR degradation. Um, it really has two key mechanisms of action. It inhibits growth and survival of EGFR and LGR5 positive cancer stem cells and also recruits immune effector cells for direct inactivation of cancer stem cells. And in preclinical models and patient-derived xenograft models, potent anti-tumor activity was seen, which led to its clinical development. So results from the dose expansion cohort in patients with head and neck cancer were reported uh, by Dr. Cohen at AACR earlier this year. This was a 49-patient cohort of recurrent metastatic disease that had previously been treated with platinum-based treatment and with anti-PD-1 therapy. These patients received PETO at the recommended phase 2 dose of 1,500 milligrams IV Q2 weeks. The primary endpoint for this study was objective response rates. And as you can see, the baseline demographics for this cohort, it was as expected for head and neck cancer patients. The median age was 63 years. Most patients were male, had a a good ECOG performance status. The most common primary tumor sites were oropharynx and oral cavity, um, as expected. Significant EGFR expression in this cohort, which is, again, something we see in head and neck cancers. And fairly typical distribution for PD-L1 and P16 status, where it was available for some of these patients. And this is a waterfall plot for response. So investigator assessed objective response rate of 37% and a disease control rate of 72%, which actually compares very favorably to what we see with cetuximab, where you know responses are typically less than 13%. And one patient with a complete response to treatment, another with HPV-positive disease who also had a partial response to treatment, 10 patients are still on treatment in this study. And the median duration of response was reported here at about six months, but uh, two-thirds of these responders were still on treatment, so that number might change as the data mature. Median overall survival was reported at almost a year, which is also pretty incredible for third-line treatment. And, you know, over half of these patients were still alive at data cutoff, so that number might also change as we get more, more data. The side effect profile was pretty consistent with a drug that targets the EGFR receptor, so rash, acne-form dermatitis were frequently reported. Fewer high-grade toxicity with the rash than you would expect with cetuximab. The hypomagnesemia was another common side effect, as were um, infusion-related reactions, which were probably more and you know, maybe even more severe than we typically see with cetuximab. I think about 75% of all patients had infusion-related reactions. 
I'd like to come next to antibody drug conjugates, which is another area of active investigation in head and neck cancers. So this picture kind of depicts how an antibody drug conjugate works. It's essentially a monoclonal antibody directed against a tumor-specific antigen that's conjugated to a cytotoxic payload. And when the antibody binds to the tumor-specific antigen at the cell surface, it's internalized, transported to the lysosome where the cleaver is broken, the linker is broken, and that leads to release of free diffusible drug. The drug can bind to microtubules and DNA within the target cell leading to cell death, but it can also diffuse out of the cell into surrounding bystander cells. So it has this interesting bystander effect and is able to kill more than just the target cell. So ASP1929 is essentially cetuximab that's bound to a light-activated dye. Patients receive the infusion intravenously and then are treated, um, the tumor sites are treated with a non-thermal red light, and the anti-cancer effect is thought to be due to disruption of the tumor cell membrane, eventually leading to cell death. In the lower left picture, you see the cylindrical diffusers, which is inserted into a needle catheter, and you to treat deeper and larger subcutaneous lesions. On the right is the frontal diffuser, which is really used for treating superficial and smaller lesions. And results from an early phase study in patients with local regionally recurrent head and neck cancer were presented at ASCO a few years ago. 30 patients were treated in this cohort. They received the study drug, like I mentioned, on day one of every cycle. And 24 hours later, the local tumor lesions were treated with light. The cycles could be repeated every four weeks for persistent disease. Um, Imaging was obtained between every cycle. In the dose expansion cohort, the primary efficacy endpoint was objective response rates. So these patients were pretty heavily pretreated. Every one of them had received radiation. The majority had received surgery and chemotherapy. A third had received immunotherapy as well. And this is the waterfall plot for responses, which were reported in about 43% of patients. Four of these patients had a complete response to treatment at the locally treated tumor sites. The median progression-free survival was 5.2 months at these sites, with a median overall survival of 9.3 months. And the most common side effects were fatigue and dysphagia. A randomized phase three trial is currently ongoing at multiple sites, randomizing this treatment to physician's choice standard of care systemic therapy in patients with local regionally recurrent head and neck cancer that have previously been treated with with platinum-based treatment. MRG003 is another antibody drug conjugate, also an anti-EGFR monoclonal antibody that's conjugated to monomethyl oristatin E. And a phase one trial was reported last year from 61 patients. The phase 1A part of the study was dose escalation in solid tumors to establish a recommended dose of 2.5 mg per kg every three weeks. The phase 1B dose expansion was in three separate cohorts, head and neck cancer, nasopharynx cancer, and colorectal cancer with a primary endpoint of objective response rates. And 39 patients were treated in the dose expansion, three disease cohort. Objective response rates were 40% for head and neck cancer, 44% for nasopharynx cancer, and no response is seen in the colorectal cancer cohort. The median duration of response was about five to six months for head and neck cancer, had not been reached for nasopharynx. The median overall survival for head and neck was about a year. 
The commonest side effects were rash and, again, from cetuximab use and AST elevation. Most side effects were low-grade, and a phase two trial is currently ongoing, I think, in about a 120-sample patient population in head and neck cancer. It's in China. So lastly, I'd like to talk about Q101, which belongs to a class of drugs called immunostats, and this is the first immunostat that's in uh, human clinical investigation. Immunostats are fusion proteins that basically deliver a load of cytokines locally to enhance tumor antigen-specific T-cell activity. And Q101 is comprises of three subunits. There is an HLA complex that's bound to and expresses um, HPV16-specific E7 oncoprotein. There's also modified IL-2 as part of the complex. And it's really designed to target to bind and expand an HPV oncoprotein-specific T-cell population. So final or updated results from this study will be presented at the poster discussion session on Monday afternoon by Dr. Chung, and I highly encourage you to attend this. This is the swimmer's plot for overall survival in the monotherapy cohort, patients treated with Q101 alone. This was a 20-patient sample. Uh, One patient had a partial response to treatment. Six other patients had durable, stable disease, and the median overall survival for this cohort was reported at about 22 months. And this is the waterfall plot for response in 14 patients that were treated with combination pembrolizumab and Q101. This was, the objective response rate was reported at 36%. There were five partial responses. The deepest one was my patient. And, you know, four out of these patients had, like, not high CPS PDL1 scores. It was less than 20%. So very encouraging data with this combination. And this is the overall survival swimmer's plot for the patients treated on the combination cohort. The overall survival data is not mature as yet, but the progression-free survival was five months for this patient group. So key take-home points from today's talk, cetuximab remains the only approved targeted therapy in head and neck cancers, but single-agent response rates are low, less than 15%, largely because of primary and acquired resistance mechanisms to the drug, and novel combinations with other targeted therapies, antibody drug conjugates, and bispecific antibodies seek to overcome resistance to treatment. And targeting HPV oncoproteins is another very exciting area of research in head and neck, so stay tuned for more development in this field, which will hopefully help our patients in the future. And with that, I'd like to present my case. This is my patient, a 56-year-old man, former 30-pack-year smoker with history of stage 4A gingival squamous cell cancer, so locally advanced disease at presentation, P16 negative. He was initially treated with surgery and adjuvant chemo radiation with curative intent. Four months later, progressed with lung metastases. PDL1 score was checked. The CPS was 10. Because he was fairly asymptomatic from um, his disease, there was no local disease, no organs at risk, like we talked about before, I treated him with pembrolizumab monotherapy, initially had a very nice response to treatment, but eight months later progressed with uh, progressive lung disease and also new liver mats. So what are the options for this patient? And this is something I'd like to post to my, open up to my colleagues here. You know, beyond pembromonotherapy, this is someone who is naive to chemo, is naive to cetuximab. How do you choose and how do you pick? Well, you know, maybe I'll just refer to the data from Institute Gustave Roussy that, that seems to indicate that when you take standard therapies like platinum-based combinations or cetuximab and give them to patients who have 
progressed on uh, pembrolizumab monotherapy, as well as Kevin Harrington's publication from the Keynote 048 looking at progression-free survival two, which is to say, how did people do on whatever their doctor chose to give them following progression on pembrolizumab, there is a suggestion that these therapies are more active than we're used to. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think that I probably would be looking at carbotaxel or a clinical trial. Yeah, I I think that what you said has to be true, uh, Barbara, that uh, about this sensitizing or priming effect Mm-hmm. of an anti-PD-1 antibody. We saw that in Keynote 40 as well, the PFS2. So here is a, a cohort of patients in a randomized study replicated where the experimental therapy is stopped and they go on to standard of care and they do better yep. than patients who did the same thing on the control arm. So there has to be a longer-term benefit to having received an anti-PD-1 antibody. And, and I think we see that. Um, certainly anecdotally, we see that. It, it, what's, uh, it, when we think about interpretation of clinical trials, I think we have to keep that in mind as well. Uh, you know, obviously, we were very encouraged with the uh, pedosemptomab data. Great pronunciation, by the way. It took me about two weeks to learn how to pronounce that. <laughs> I drug. heard your presentation um, <laughs> to figure out how to pronounce it. Uh, so, um, uh, but here we have a 37% response rate in patients, 85% of whom had had an anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 antibody as their immediate uh, past therapy. And so is that 37% really compared to cetuximab in the pre-IO era? We don't know that. And so, so I think uh, when we treat patients... Uh, I think we see that that lingering effect of an anti-PD-1. And I think when we interpret clinical trial data, uh, especially uncontrolled clinical trial data, we have to keep that in mind. To answer your question, I would definitely consider a clinical trial first because this is an area where no defined standard of care exists. We desperately need one. If I don't have a clinical trial, then I would probably favor a taxane regimen. Did this patient got taxane no. or did not? Yeah. So I would favor a taxane-containing regimen. They're P16 negative. I, I'm biased towards cetuximab or an anti-EGFR agent in uh, HPV-negative patients, I'd probably combine paclitaxel and cetuximab. There's a published, non-controlled, but there are, there's a published regimen of weekly paclitaxel and cetuximab that appears to be well-tolerated with uh, good activity. So this patient did progress, like, you know, about within four months of adjuvant chemoradiation, which was platinum-based uh, with distant metastases. Is this someone you would consider chemorefractory at this point, or would you be willing to try chemo again, second line, after Pembro, or go to an anti-EGFR-based treatment? What can he had? Uh, platinum cisplatin. Yeah. yeah. Um, at this point, I, I would be willing to consider platinum I tend not to use a triplet in, mm-hmm. in second line, and that's just my bias to, to try and uh, reduce toxicity. But I, yeah, I would consider a platinum taxane combination, or even, Barbara, based on your data, uh, platinum cetuximab. Is, is the patient eligible for the ECOG Akron 3202? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't because he progressed within four months. Ah. Yeah. Maybe we should just highlight that. Yeah, yeah. So this is. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is such an undefined area, like what to do beyond first-line immune checkpoint therapy in these patients as standard of care. Um, so there is a national trial ongoing, um, ECOG-3202, which aims to answer this question. It's really testing whether VEGF, anti-VEGF treatment, which we pointed out earlier, was you know an, um, one of the contributing factors to resistance to immunotherapy. It's testing whether VEGF, anti-VEGF targeting treatment would be beneficial in overcoming resistance to immunotherapy. So it's a three-arm design. Patients get randomized to standard of care chemo plus cetuximab or chemo plus um, bevacizumab versus atezolizumab and bevacizumab. And this is an ongoing national study. So this patient wasn't eligible for that trial. Um, I did give him standard uh, platinum doublet in the second line, which I think he responded to for maybe three months, eventually progressed. Um, and then you really, the, the question I wanted to ask was which clinical trials among the ones that we talked about could he be considered for? At our institution, because we have the cetuxafatinib study, that's what we were considering him for next. He, of course, would have been eligible for pitocemtimab as well. And if he had been previously cetuximab exposed, he could have been considered for the ficlituzumab and cetuximab combination trial, which um, is currently closed, but you know, hopefully we'll have a phase three for that. Great. Thank you. Good. Um, we have a few minutes to address some of the great questions that have been coming in. And I'm going to maybe look for, they're all terrific questions, but one of them here is, why do you think that the CTLA-4 drugs are not effective in head and neck cancer? And I guess the corollary to that is, is the fact that they're not effective in our recurrent metastatic trials the last word, or what are we learning from the neoadjuvant trials? Do you want me to take that? Yeah, take <laughs> so, it. <laughs> um, well, I would say that anti-CTLA-4 outside of melanoma as single agents don't have um, high activity, and, and, uh, and, and that is true in head and neck cancer as well. Now, in other cancers, they have clearly augmented anti-PD-1 activity, but I would say that uh, Checkmate 651 saw that as well, but it saw that in a group of patients who had a tumor microenvironment that was responsive to immunotherapy. And uh, Barbara, I think what you, what you didn't show for Checkmate 651 is that the nivolumab, ipilimumab in CPS greater than 20 tumors had a, very had a response tumor. rate of 35% and a duration of response of almost three years. So to me, there, there is something there, but it's probably not for all comers. Now, the, the tremi, the tremilumumab data, I think is, uh, is not as good because in all likelihood, tremilumumab is not a is not as good as ipilimumab. I, I, I think it's an inferior CTLA-4 uh, antibody. Now, there are sort of a next generation of anti-CTLA-4 agents that are coming that may be even more active, and, and hopefully we'll see those tried in multiple solid tumors, including head and neck. I was wondering if you were going to speculate on CTLA-4 perhaps being particularly important for priming in the lymph node, and, uh, and, and we dissect out the lymph nodes or we radiate them. I think when you look at the data in the new adjuvant setting, um, we have seen some yeah. pretty high response rates for Nevo-IPI in the CPS-20 yeah, population. That's a good point. Another question is whether... Cisplatin retains its primacy over carboplatin in the era of immune checkpoint inhibitors. So, uh, you know, many patients on Keynote 048 got carboplatin, not cisplatin. Are you comfortable with that? RT, do you want to? Is this in the recurrent, recurrent metastatic, metastatic setting? setting yeah. yeah. 
I think so. I don't think I ever use cisplatin in the recurrent metastatic setting. The toxicity is is prohibitive. Um, it's really not a limited course. I mean, if you're going to plan to do the full six cycles, it's a lot of cisplatin. Um, and, you know, I think we see great responses, like the 43% response rate on the B10 trial was really with a carbo backbone, not a cisplatin backbone. So I feel pretty comfortable using carbo. Yeah, so we're all on the same page, yeah, right, it sounds like. Yeah, I would agree. Okay. So we are now going to go on to the final talk, immunotherapy and other innovative strategies in locally advanced disease. Thanks, Barbara. Let me take you through some data fairly quickly uh, and uh, really talking about this combination, and Barbara alluded to to some of it in her talk of, of radiation and immunotherapy. And we do have now a fair bit of experience combining anti-PD-1 and anti-PD-L1 agents with either radiation or chemotherapy radiation. There you see some examples for both classes of agents. And um, I would say, the unfortunately, the data so far has been not encouraging. The first study to report was the so-called Javelin Head and Neck 100, and there you see the experimental arm adding a Velumab is in blue. It is inferior, uh, now not statistically, but it is certainly lower than the control arm, uh, I think, to, to our surprise. Keynote 412, now using pembrolizumab in a very similar study design, was recently reported. And again, this was a negative study, although encouragingly the green arm, which is the experimental, is uh, numerically higher than the placebo, but still did not reach a pre-specified p-value or hazard ratio. Interestingly enough, what pembrolizumab did seem to influence was distant progressive disease. And you can see that in the pembrolizumab plus chemo-RT arm, there was a lower rate of distant progressive disease versus the placebo. And, and perhaps that may influence the way we think about these agents going forward. Also interestingly is that when one looked at pdl one expression as a factor, you can begin to see that in fact there may be a hint of improvement in the pembrolizumab-treated patients. Here's a study that we're conducting at our institution with many others, with many partners, uh, looking in HPV-positive patients of pembrolizumab radiation and cisplatin radiation with the hope that we may be able to influence the outcome of these patients. That study is ongoing. Here's a study run by ECOG, again looking in HPV-positive patients, but now really focusing on the anti-PD-1 agent in the post-CRT or the adjuvant setting, which again may be the best use of these agents. And you can see that the experimental arm is platinum radiation and at, the, at its completion, the start of nivolumab versus observation, and that study is actively accruing. What about going beyond immunotherapy? What's on the horizon? And what many of us are excited about are these so-called SMAC memetics and, uh, led by drug in head and neck cancer called Sivenipant. And this is, in a sense, an inhibitor of an inhibitor that is the inhibitor of apoptosis. And this drug inhibits that, therefore really priming the cell for an apoptotic type of cell death if there is an initial insult. And that insult can be provided by either certain types of chemotherapy or radiation uh, therapy. Here is zivenepant added to cisplatin radiation in a randomized phase two study with the primary endpoint being local regional control. 
But here I show you overall survival at the five-year analysis, and, and what we see is an almost doubling of overall survival with the addition of zivenepant in this cohort of patients. Of course, uh, as you might guess, this prompted a phase three study, the so-called Trilinx trial that has completed accrual with a very similar design, cisplatin radiation plus minus zivenepant. Other areas of exploration in platinum unfit patients include pembrolizumab and radiation in cisplatin unfit patients. This is a phase two study that showed encouraging data. That led to HN004, which employed dervalumab and radiation versus cetuximab and radiation. And this study was reported as negative uh, yet to be published. The REACH trial also had a cohort of uh, platinum unfit. This time, the experimental arm was cetuximab, avelumab, an anti-PD, L1 antibody, and radiation. Again, cetuximab radiation is the control. And again, that study was reported in abstract form as negative yet to be published. What about immunotherapy with surgery? Um, there's certainly rationale for that. A, in a sense, uh, using immunotherapy before the tumor is perturbed or that those lymph nodes are extracted or, or treated. And there are several studies that are ongoing in this setting. Keynote 689, HN003, and tezolizumab as adjuvant therapy are all studies that I have yet to report. And so let me go to the case of a patient with stage 3 locally advanced head neck cancer. This is a 59-year-old smoker, 30-pack years. Um, He presented with odynophagia and right otalgia. Uh, The exam demonstrated a right oropharyngeal mass with ipsilateral lymph nodes, staged as T3N1. And I'll turn to Barbara first. Uh, what, What options would you consider for this patient? Yes, so I I think clinical trial is always appealing, and had trialing still been accruing, (laughs) you know, we probably would have tried. But I think for me, a T3 node positive cancer, I don't like radiation alone. So I would be looking at chemo radiation for this patient. RT, what do you think? Completely agree. I think T3 and one, um, I'm not sure how many nodes he had, but N1 could mean in any number of nodes in the in the ipsilateral neck. But those are patients that we do not want to de-escalate with radiation alone. They do better with chemo and radiation. And he would be an excellent candidate for um, the EA3161 trial that you, you put up earlier. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so completely agree. He was treated with uh, platinum radiation. Uh, we didn't consider surgery very strongly for this patient uh, because of the size of the tumor mm-hmm. and the ipsilateral lymph node. He certainly could have done surgery up front, but, but I think functionally will likely do better with chemotherapy radiation. So but the point being that a clinical trial should always be considered. I just want to add that I think for a lot of years, not much happened in clinical trials in head and neck cancer. We asked a lot of Hmm. There were a lot of trials and asked the same questions. And now you've just heard this, you know, stunning pipeline of of new agents that are really active where we're really seeing anti-cancer activity. So we're a little over the hour. So I think I won't go back to the question list. But thank you all very much for attending, um, both to those of you who are in the room and to everybody online. So thank you all very much for being here. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com 
forward slash JQE860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Coheres Biosciences Incorporated, and Merck and Company Incorporated.